Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Alrighty, everybody, welcome back. We are going to be jumping into an episode today that is about M&A integration, the good, the bad, and the ugly with Kisan Patel from m and Science. So Kisan and I are going to be talking about what M&A integration is, what it means, why it's important, and how to do it the right way. Kisan has had a decade of experience in the merger and acquisition space as an advisor, where he had done over 40 deals worth over $1.5 billion before he left in 2012 to start Deal Room, which is a project management software aimed at modernizing the merger and acquisition process through technology using the agile methodology, uh, which are best practices from the technology industry. That's about rapid execution and iteration in pursuit of a clear goal. Kisan is also the founder and CEO of M&A Science, which is a community of people that are on a mission to perfect the merger and acquisition process. He's also the host of the podcast M&A Science that has 25,000 monthly listeners and the author of the book Agile M&A. And what we're going to be talking about today is what it means to successfully integrate a company after an acquisition, what typically goes wrong, and how to make sure that at the end of the day, the acquisition is worth it from a financial investment perspective, but also it from the people and operations perspective, which is often much more difficult than people anticipate. You know, the, the amount of people that say, Hey, we should roll up XYZ industry. And then they build out an amazing uh, spreadsheet that looks beautiful with their financial returns. And then I'm like, well, what about the people and the systems and the operations part? That's really what we're going to be diving into today. And the reason I'm so excited about this conversation is because so much time is spent in podcasts, conversations, books about getting the deal done, uh, the, about the valuations and the horror or success stories about what happens afterwards. But as Keeson lays out in this conversation, one of the most crucial steps is bringing the end picture of the combined operations into the due diligence and transaction process. So that way, the whole goal of the clear outcome of the integrated companies is part of the discussions at the transaction and then manage with an agile methodology that is how the integration actually takes place. And the definition of the Agile methodology is a project management approach that involves breaking the project into phases and emphasizes continuous collaboration and improvement. I mean, it sounds pretty elementary, but not a lot of people execute it like this. And so I believe that it, truly from my, my the bottom of my heart of that this approach is taken, there's a higher correlation between expectations and reality. The financial returns will be there to make the deal worth it. And there, because there's some stat like 80% of acquisitions don't yield the return above their cost of capital or their borrowing costs, mainly due to this integration process, which is again, why Keysign's on this mission to make it more efficient. And most importantly, there will be more happy buyers and sellers because everybody's talking about reality instead of a pie in the sky expectations with no backup plan of how to actually integrate everything. So quick announcement is we just got back from the Intentional Growth Bootcamp down in Orlando, Florida. It was so much fun. And if you were not able to attend, but were interested in the educational material, go check out the Intentional Growth Academy. And what we're doing now for the uh, listeners of this podcast, as well as clients and people that are giving referrals to us, is offering a coupon so that 
do it yourself msrp of the intentional growth academy is 1500 bucks but for anybody listening in in the show notes there's a link to the academy where you can see what's in the curriculum you can see what's uh in the academy but we're offering 500 bucks off so that way it's only 995 it's 71 videos nine and a half hours and it teaches you how to view and run the company like a financial asset using the five principles and if you're not ready to commit the time or the money for the academy just yet I would highly recommend going and taking the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard, which gives you a score based on how well you're viewing and running the company as a financial asset using these four sections. And then you get access to your results as well as five videos that are based on a case study from the Intentional Growth Academy. So you can see what good looks like. It also gives you a nice little taste of what would actually be the value that's packed into the academy. So I appreciate everybody tuning in. And without further ado, here is Kisan Patel. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Kisan, how are you, my friend? I am doing great, Ryan. How you been? I'm so excited to have this conversation. You have had quite the journey over the last uh, few years as well as I have. And it was just doing a little bit of a catch up. And our dear friend, Dan Golden, who introduced us, actually called me this morning. So must be the signs from above that this conversation was meant to happen. So I appreciate you taking the time, my friend. Hey, my pleasure. Looking forward to the convo. So let's uh, let's give the listeners just a quick snapshot of your background and the companies and kind of the where you have uh, your tentacles out from the different setup that you have right now, Keystone. And then we'll talk about kind of the the topic at hand, which I know has been a personal passion of yours for a long time. And you've been seeing the growth that shows that the market's starting to care and listen, which is why I'm excited. Sure. So in short, I spent 10 years as an M&A advisor, wanted to do something tech. Did a startup that failed miserably, but walked away from the experience of working with software engineers and how they utilize project management tools to manage building software. Figure why not a project management tool for M&A. Led to the inspiration to start Deal Room in 2012. And in that journey, made a bunch of more founder mistakes, but around started getting traction around three or four years in. In 2017, a good friend of mine marketing came to me and said, hey man, you should do a podcast. I said, what the hell's a podcast? And he said, don't <laughs> worry about it. It's going to be the next biggest thing. You just got to do it. And uh, that led to our podcast that we host called M&A Science. 2018, we spun off a virtual data room product out of our deal room suite because that continued to expand to be a lifecycle management platform. And then 2020, we started the M&A Science Academy. So we have an online platform to learn, very geared towards corporate M&A. So a lot around doing diligence, integration, and so forth. And then uh, just continue looking to build a, a business line right now around on-demand M&A talent. So mm. shifting M&A science to be a portfolio of products that cater to mergers and acquisitions throughout the life cycle. It's awesome, man. And uh, no small project to tackle, right? <laughs> the inefficiencies of mergers and acquisitions in the U.S. Right? <laughs> I think it's an exciting space just because it is so inefficient. And not much has changed in the last 20 years. <laughs> Well, let's talk about what that, you know, what your passion is. And then actually before we do, like, I think for the listeners and why I found Keystone, what you're doing so uh, intriguing and which is why I referenced you in the Intentional Growth Academy when I was explaining the process of actually taking a company to market. I'm always talking about like, here's how it's supposed to be done. And when I say supposed to, like, 
you know, you get to the bigger size deals that you've been working with most of your life. It's there's a pretty regimen structure of like taking a company to market, how they're assessing it. They got investment thesis, all that kind of stuff. So it's like, Hey, like here's what's possible for the lower market. If they have the right resources, but you specifically picked out an inefficiency of even the bigger size deals in the corporate M&A. And actually I just did a podcast recently he's on corporate divestiture. So I've kind of been kind of hammering through like, Hey, what does the bigger companies do? But you specifically honed in on integration. And why was that? Boy, I think it started working on a variety of deals originally with the sell side. We started working with corporates doing IPOs, acquisitions. I learned integration from talking to practitioners and became very intrigued, one, by the complexity. This isn't the easiest part of the deal. Probably the more complex part of doing an M&A deal. A lot that can go wrong, but essentially it's the stage that either makes or breaks. You either create value or destroy value. You hit your goals, achieve your investment thesis, you miss the mark and may have to make some write-downs. That's where it made it interesting. And it's just an area that's not very mature. If we think about standardization, best practices, or science, like there's not a lot of proven methodologies behind how you integrate companies. So that's what it looked like a great opportunity to focus on learnings and document different practices in that area. I, uh, I interviewed, um, his mind is space is, is space me right now. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, a gentleman that was a corporate M and a, he was in the division of a bigger corporate uh, company that was doing acquisitions and he'd find out that they're doing an acquisition because the board would be like, Hey, we're buying this company. And he was like one of the executives. So then he was, he, he was kind of alluding to your whole like stick of it, like, which is I, like, I'm supposed to like get all the goals done once I figure out that we're going to be buying this thing. And then, then there's the deal structure and then there's the, Hey, by the way, you have to make this actually worth it. So like break down, like what does integration mean to you and how does, what does a successful integration look like from an outcome perspective? Yeah. The integration is really the activities you need to achieve the value you're looking to extract out of your acquisition, right? Cause when you're buying a business, you have some intended value for it that could be, is based on the strategy. Are we buying a technology to add capabilities to our offering? Are we buying a base of customer? Are we buying engineering talent? There is a clear driver of why you bought that company. And to be able to capture and deliver that value, that's what integration is to me. Yeah, and making it work, right? Making the company still operate (laughs) as well versus like, you know, I think about the timelines of some of the, the, the private equity firms, which can be a hindrance of successfully or wanting to even successfully integrate companies. So, I mean, when I think about like even my partners, Kisan, so they did, uh, so Matt and Joel are my partners and Matt, uh, when they sold their ESOP to this PE firm, they rolled up, I think it was 18 companies in 20 months or something like that. And so they went from like 300 employees to 1300. And I just was like, Hey, now, like, let's say the math of that all worked out perfect. You still have 18 HR systems, 18 cultures, 18 uh, ERP systems, 18 CRMs, comp plans, marketing material. Like, that's just a lot of work. <laughs> like, so, like, how have you seen, like, from, from all your experience, like, 
how does someone normally tackle it? Like, let's talk about like what you normally saw, which was why this became your passion. Then you, you and I were talking about as we hit record, like what does the ultimate end goal look like and how that's incorporated up front instead? There should be, I should say. This is where we got to define synergies because <laughs> a lot of this is based on what synergies you attend on uh, capturing. And it's fundamentally broken down into two types. Cost synergies, revenue synergies. Cost synergies tend to be easier, straightforward. We're cutting costs. We don't need two CFOs. A lot of these back-end roles, call centers, could be consolidated into one. We're going to eliminate costs. We don't need two subscriptions for our sales force and, and things of that sort. Um, revenue synergies, on the other hand, is when we're really trying to make one plus one equal three. Mm-hmm. Can we get our sales teams to cross-sell products and achieve additional revenue? Can we bring this product into our, our distribution channels and increase revenues? Easier said than done. So that's- <laughs> right, everybody listening is going, yep, agreed. <laughs> because even if they're trying to roll out their own system for their own company with their own culture that they control, it's still difficult, Right. So how was it like, I mean, I, I, I read the stat, not read the stat. I heard it said, uh, Ken Sanginario, who's the creator of the value opportunity profile, talking about like how to actually take company specific risk in the weighted average cost of capital and calculate that. And so I mean, my point is he's very intrigued with the operational tie to valuations, but he was saying that like, is it like 80 or 90% he said of deals don't actually get the return that they intended and actually the deal was more expensive than their cost of capital. I don't know if you have any stats over there, if you just anecdotally It, it, it agree. is. I, I think there's a very definition on what M&A failure rate is, but it, I would bottom line say it ends up taking a lot longer than you anticipate. You'll get those results. It just typically ends up taking a lot longer. We tend to be very uh, optimistic when we put together these financial models, and a lot of times you have to be, if you really want to sell it, if you want to get the financing in place, if you want to get the board mm-hmm. on board, you got to be very optimistic about it to get that deal across the finish line. Then the poor integration folks have to execute and try their best to deliver on that promise. And that that's where it gets challenging. And that's where you don't completely fail unless something really disastrously goes wrong, where you really screw things up, a bunch of people leave the company and then uh then you got some bigger issues but mm-hmm. if you do things you, you tend to get there it just takes longer than expected so let's let's talk about like uh if you can kind of give us a compare and contrast so like what you normally see from like a maybe a leadership so like when you and i were talking about like the end state like what what is the experience and i'm trying to think about like maybe you got some stories of like what is happening afterwards so the deal close so like what normally happens and why do you want to change it and then what would, how would the current state or like, how would you make it better if it was done optimally? Yeah, let's, let's walk through the ideal. So current state, let's say current state is, uh, you don't know better. <laughs> you get excited about getting an opportunity to sell your business for a large sum of money. And with that, you're sort of reactive to the process and are trying to deliver the information for the buyer and you, you get all the way through and then the surprises unwind because there's a lot of things that you didn't expect. So now if we were to look at this future state of how we want to do M&A, first and foremost, let's start off by bringing that end state 
what a combined organization is going to look like to the very front end of the process to crystallize it between executive leader to executive leader. So we're on the same page. What, mm-hmm. what, why, why, why are we looking to do this deal? What ultimately are, are we looking to achieve? I, and, and what is that combined company going to look like? Mm-hmm. I think getting a sense of that early, it aligns second to understanding each company's values because we often use common corporate keywords to define values but they do have different meanings for each company and having a conversation around it allows you to understand what exactly is the culture? How is it the way of working defined with each organization mm-hmm. and more specifically the leadership styles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you find some red flags pretty early that, Hey, you guys are very old school, top bottom. We're very bottoms up. Mm-hmm. I don't know how these companies are really going to combine or find that way of working, or maybe there's a specific way around it or even some of the considerations you'll have down the road and how you integrate the company, mm-hmm. you may get a sense of understanding the cultures and what your approach would be there as well. Um, I think third part goes to the go-to-market. Can we get aligned on an outline of what that combined go-to-market is going to look like? What's it going to look like for that customer? Mm-hmm. Because currently, our organizations have their own way, respected way of delivering value to the customer. But once our organizations combine, what is that going to look like to the customer? And mm-hmm. that's when you start building that outline of a go-to-market. I think fourth, when you go through your diligence, you will want to take that outline and let it shape over into a integration planning uh, work stream that runs in parallel to the diligence work stream. Mm-hmm. And this way you can actively iterate on that integration plan as you're doing diligence, because there's a lot of things you uncover in diligence that starts getting you thinking about how you're going to integrate the company. As you mm, learn more and yep. more about that business, you should be able to update that plan and reference that information you uncovered in diligence. You don't have to go scramble around to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you want to keep the same team members intact that were participating in diligence to help manage the actual integration mm-hmm. of that company. Can you give us an example, Keyson, of something that you would find or like as data is getting brought to the surface through diligence that might iterate or change the integration plan? Well, let's just some basic example. You're doing diligence on a company, find out they're on a totally different HR system and that neither side has expertise in how to migrate that information into a combined system. So then that might be something where, hey, in our integration plan, we need to find a resource that can actually help with this integration because we don't want to have two different payrolls. We want to combine them as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, let's figure that out. And you, you start building that into your outline as, and then you may define it as well as you can. There's a lot of these activities that you 100% want to have clearly defined for day one. Uh, so it's a, a big exercise. And the more detailed and well-planned you are for integration, Go in and usually stage it out, right? Here's what I'm doing day one, mm-hmm. the first 30 days, second set of 30 days, the third. Uh, How many and, people and do that? It varies. It really varies company to company. I, I can tell you there's a big cultural shift in MA where there's a more bigger emphasis on the preparation from that, that buy side of, of doing integration much earlier during diligence. Uh, in fact, you're seeing buyers push to have more control of that process so that they can do better integration planning. Uh, you see it sometimes 
the banker may be involved and you don't get to do, they have a controlled approach mm -hmm. to doing diligence. When if you have both entities collaborating together, you're able to actually work, build a plan that's uh, aligned between both buyers and sellers. How much of this is related, uh, Keysound, of like the desire to get more into the operational with like, the amount of dry powder and the amount of M&A activity that's been going out there and the people that are desiring for acquisition through, you know, to grow through acquisition, that they, that they're going downstream. So like there's not enough cash flow to just hire the EYs and KPMGs to fix shit. Like, is it like, Hey, like this kind of matters because there's not enough cash flow for consultants to throw at it. Or is it just more of just an M&A marketplace maturing in general? Do you think? They have bigger fundamental differences whether you're buying a deal from a bank process or a proprietary deal. Mm. Can, can you describe the proprietary deal for the audience? A bank deal is usually held in an auction process. You have an investment bank, they build out a profile, marketing materials for a company, they invite a variety of different buyers, uh, and then they'll compete. They'll stage it out and they get pretty limited access to information because they want to keep it competitive. Uh, and you're just entertaining a lot of different buyers. So it's hard to mm -hmm. create that bandwidth to create different meetings mm -hmm. and so forth for every person to meet with a management team. A proprietary deal, you go out and hunt for your own opportunity. This is what we call control your destiny <laughs> because you, you define a strategy. If you're an organization and you've decided that M&A is a tool that you can use against your strategy for growth, then you should have that clearly defined. Like these would be the type of companies that would fit or the strategy that we have in play. And then you proactively go out and you find those companies and you have this story to sell of how those, the, the target company and your organization combined is going to create a lot of significant value, be more competitive in the marketplace, deliver more value to the customers. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, on those deals, you're, you're working in a very mutual way with that company. You usually have more time because some of these deals happen in a much longer time frame than an auction process, you may be nurturing a relationship for a good year before the person's re re ready to transact. Mm -hmm. And you have that relationship established. I think you're more accommodating with timelines and goals. Mm -hmm. You have a lot more time to think things through. Some of these integration activities we're talking about, mm -hmm. you definitely got a lot more bandwidth to be able to plan those things. But I think there's a huge difference. The proprietary deals tend to go a lot smoother when you have that relationship in place, controls over your timelines, as opposed to no relationship and compressed timelines. hundred percent agree with you, man. And I think it also, I'm curious on your thoughts of, it depends on what seat you're sitting in, whether you're in the seller's seat or the buyer's seat, right? Because if you and I both, if I want to sell Arcona, I know I'm going to hire an investment banker, pin a bunch of people against each other. And it's like, it's like, it's, this is the whole pull and pull, uh, push and pull of buyers and sellers in M&A. We're like deal structure, like right off the bat, seller wants an ass or a, a stock sale, wants to have a higher investment banker, pin a bunch of people against each other, all cash up close. I mean, if you think about then the opposite side, so they're like, there's this massive canyon of like the value that's going to be exchanged, but then the operational integration. Cause I, I think, I mean, if I were to say from my perspective, obviously having that thought through collaborative approach on diligence that then mirrors the integration plan will then probably reflect the deal structure. How, like, do you have any experience or thoughts of like, how do you get the, the transparency that you want without putting a buyer or seller in jeopardy of being too cozy and getting screwed over in the spirit of trying to make something work? 
if you're the buyer? Uh, either side, actually. Yeah, like if you, if you because it, I guess I, I, maybe let me rephrase it, Kisan, is like from both sides, because the whole goal is to get a deal done that's right for everybody. Like that's the whole, that would be the ideal situation, right? So then you're trying to get the transparency. You're trying to get the upfront. You know, if, you, if you're selling, you might not want the proprietary deal because you want more competition. You, know, you see what I'm saying? Like you're trying to, to bridge that chasm while also trying to get the deal done. So there's like a, a certain amount of information that you should be sharing or, you know, to accomplish what you're trying to ex- describe, right? Which is, because I'm thinking about if, if I'm going to be selling my business, like on my old experience is like, here's how it all works. Well, if the deal doesn't get done and this is a competitor that's right down the road, I'm screwed. You right. I mean? So like, it's just this balance of like, the goal is to get a good deal done and have everybody be happy. But like, do you see the, do you see, is my question or comment making sense? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, in the deals I've worked on, it's always the the lack of information that causes the issue. Yeah, so I, I would be enough. more proactive to ask the tough questions to get a good understanding. Even as a company today, we get approached by potential buyers and there's just a lot. I'm always curious on what, what their investment thesis is. Like, how, how do you think you're going to build this out and play, create more value than we're doing? Because <laughs> I love it. That's all. If you can really do a better job than we're doing here, I'm open to it. Let's, let's talk about it. <laughs> That's a wonderful point. Uh, you know, but the, the, so even on that side, but on the buy side as well, because you, you want to understand what are the goals, even in that management team, do they want to stick around. And I, I think when you think about the exit, you're right. Because as a seller, you can say, hey, I want to create a competitive environment at the highest price. But if I can come to you, even though I'm reaching out, but it's, this is an opportunity that I see strongly aligns with our strategy, then I'm really confident that there is an opportunity here to create an immense amount of value as combined companies together mm-hmm. and that I'm going to compensate you fairly. Like I'm not coming here trying to, to get a deal, a sweetheart deal in this market. Now I understand you got options, but I, I just see that we would be a great fit because of mm-hmm. these areas that we can see that we can create value. And I'm able, comfortable to build a model out and be transparent and share that with you and how we're thinking about what your company's worth uh, and, and how we'd pay for it. Um, and, and also, you know, you know what, what kind of flexibility and terms you have, because that's all your approach in negotiating with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that person is there. They want to be participating in the next series of growth for the organization. Well, can you build that kind of re- retention around it? And a lot of times you can make some very favorable retention plans that are just as good as having that level of ownership mm-hmm. and allows that person to continue to, to reap the fruits of the carried forward growth. Well said. Yeah. And it's, um, it's just like the hand glove, right? You're just trying to be a lot more thoughtful to make sure that it's the right fit. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about the different points was the go-to-market strategy. Um, I think that's a very interesting call out because I have more interviews than I can count, Kisan, of like, that's where the egos and the conflict really start to show their head because of difference of opinions and how that trickles through the entire organization. Can you walk us through like where you've seen success or failure based on the lack of, or the lack of discussion around that? I think the key is having that discussion early. The biggest friction I've seen is you get to close and you haven't really thought through what go to market's going to look like. That's a big problem. And then you have big discrepancies around it or realize there's a lot of questions to answer. There's a lot of questions in what are their customer base, who, who, what their profiles are, what percentage overlap do we have? Then it, it just, those things are big ticket items that dictate 
how you're going to approach integrating the go-to-market. Uh, yeah. Then you got the whole operational piece underpinning it in terms of what the systems and those things, which get even more complex. When I think, well, it, agreed, man. And what I see is people focus on that, the cost synergies and the operational things, because it's easy. Like, okay, we have a specialist in this HR system and they have one in this one and we're obviously the mothership. So, and I mean, obviously that's an easy, straightforward answer versus a thought through one, but the revenue synergies, man, it's so funny when I think about like the, so the couple of stories that I, that I've got uh, top of mind is like, this Bobby Martin that I interviewed, they hired him, they, they bought his company saying for all the synergies and then they got his data and then they gave his sales reps a comp plan that there was no way he could accomplish his earn out. Like it was like, wait a second, of course I could hit my, my plan, but now they've got 20 more products and services my sales rep have to sell. And that was not discussed or like, um, I have a client where they sold and they were revolutionizing their industry. And then the person that they sold to, it was like for, I mean, I know this is so cliche because but like, it's like solution-based selling versus transactional product. And the solutions-based selling company sold to the mothership that does the transactional selling and the whole team realized in the first kickoff call, like, oh no, we sold to the wrong philosophy. <laughs> Why do you laugh like that? Because it's like because it's true. I, I watched our team transition because we used to sell on the lower end of the market in a very transactional sale. Now we sell very much of an enterprise uh, solution selling approach. So I like a, I know, man. It's it's hard. And and so let's talk about how the integration could play out as it relates to kind of like how the deal structures that are potentially out there. Like so, like. I'm trying to think about like how, like how many people go straight into trying to just structure the deal, but then don't think about the integration that correlates to that. So like, what are some things to be thinking about as people are thinking about integration, whether they're going to be staying or not saying like, how does, how does their decision-making during that transaction impact their role and what they're planning on doing and how they, how they could structure the deal? I think you said it in that right there, decision-making. That's like the biggest fundamental key in how to make integration work well because if you look at what integration is it's a lot of change that happens but there's a, a lot of decisions behind those changes that need to happen at a fast pace so when you look at a lot of organizations they tend to have a varying culture around how they make decisions mm. so that, i think that's a key thing to identify yeah. with first and foremost and define and almost Clarify what that framework is going to look like when approaching mm. integration. What's the decision-making framework? Who's going to be, what's the, what's the, how are we going to keep up with this uh, demand to make a high volume of decisions in a short period of time? If you're enjoying this conversation about integration and how to make an acquisition actually worth it, whether you're the buyer or the seller, by the way, this is all about aligning expectations with reality. And if we take and reverse engineer what the ultimate end goal of two combined companies looks like, we have to bring that forward into the due diligence process that is part of due diligence and the acquisition and transactions. So that way people can start executing right afterwards. The first place to start is the Intentional Growth Academy because it walks you through valuations, deal structures, but then also in principle number four, how do the eight functional areas of a business that are essentially part of the due diligence and how the operations are correlated to the risk of the future cash flow? So 
my favorite example of uh, the acquisitions done well is when two people understand how the companies that are getting combined are going to result in the eight functional areas tied to the valuation, tied to the risk of that future cash flow, which it impacts the future multiple. Go check out the Intentional Growth Academy in the link in the show notes. We offer 500 bucks off. So it's only 995, so a thousand bucks for the do it yourself. If you're not ready for that, go check out the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard, which gives you a score based on how well you're running the company as a financial asset. And it comes with five videos that are a case study pulled from the academy, gives you a little bit of a flavor of how well you're doing as well as the value that's in the academy. I know that both these resources are worth checking out because I was at a breakout last week in a conference and one guy looked across from me and said, if I would have known this and we were dealing with a normalized EBITDA exercise as well as an integration checklist, he said it would have saved him 15 million bucks. Anecdotal, and I know he could have been making that up, but for what it's worth, I know that the people, once they've gone through it and they've already been through a deal, they actually understand the value of this material and this knowledge. So at least go check out the scorecard, if not the Academy. Thanks for tuning in and we'll keep rolling into the episode. Let's talk about because that kind of insert what you've been doing for so long now. Like, how do you accomplish that? Because maybe talk about the space that you've been trying to, that you've been working on tackling. Can you sound of like the deal room, project management integration. Talk about how your guys' systems work to actually do that. Because it's fascinating where what was it like before and why did you start tackling with, with a software product and, you know, maybe reference your old days and why you decided to get into tech? Yeah, it's, it's evolved. I think in the early days we thought there's gotta be something better than Excel. That was <laughs> the first thing. Usually when you see things done in Excel, it's a indicator. There's a highly inefficient and there's a lot of inefficiencies and things could be done much better. That, that was early. Just, hey, can we build a project management tool, make M&A more efficient? I think if you fast forward today, we have a huge emphasis around best practices. We have a whole framework called Agile M&A, which is inspired by the same Agile mm-hmm. software engineers use to be iterative and respond to changes as they happen. Um, a lot of commonalities with the way you do M&A because you start off with a little bit of information and you get more information. And information either leads to identifying risks or identifying opportunity, how quickly can you respond to it? Uh, and that, that by nature is where we've been defining a lot of the practice and they go hand in hand because mm-hmm. once you adopt the practice, then can you build a tool around it to help standardize those practices? So that's where we have agile MA and then deal room. They, they work well when they're both in play. Mm-hmm. I think agile MA helps get that culture or fosters that culture of, being change oriented. Um, once you have that established, there, there's essentially this culture that comes along with it of continuous improvement. Then you can introduce all kinds of tools and mm-hmm. uh, other things there. So the pra- practice should come first. The tool is there to help standardize those practices and get the most out of it. In in and I can't. Remember, it's been years since um, you and I were chatting about some of the stuff that you're working on. But like, and you're you're adding. Are, you're adding information to the the process, right? Cause like information knowledge, like access to the information to make the decisions. So like how often, first of all, is that correct? Do you guys, do you have like a due diligence library tied into the project management system, right? Correct. A lot of it's centralizing information in one place and right. being able to repurpose it, right? Cause if you do integration as a whole different work stream, that's completely separate. A lot of this, you get a knowledge chasm. And you, the better you can connect your diligence integration process together, 
you're going to get a lot more retention on that knowledge. You're going to be able to have better planned integration, execute faster, ultimately execute better and have better outcomes. And, and with the, uh, how many of the, the, the people or the companies that you're exposed to have an ongoing due diligence record keeping library on purpose, regardless of whether they're trying to sell. Cause I think that this topic becomes just like the nightmare of everybody where it's always reactive versus like keeping up on that stuff. So like not only could they acquire, but then sell should or have a conversation about selling as fast as possible. I mean, what's the maybe breakdown of how many people manage their corporate information like that? It's a good question. I think it's a big variance there. You may see larger public companies have a structure in play. I've seen it. Larger company goes through an IPO, for example. You organize your data Mm -hmm. in a, a very intensive, disciplined way when you do that. And if you keep that intact, you could repurpose it quite easily for additional fundraising or any other purpose. Um, when you look at smaller companies, they don't usually do that at all. <laughs> I know. I remember, I mean, the amount of times in our academy where I'm like, hey, so due diligence and people are like, like, oh my God, it's just like people's worst nightmare. So, but it's like. I was trying to explain, I'm like, you're trying to recreate the whole story of your company. You're back, you know, going back to all your financials and all your records and trying to prove your story in real time and how damn stressful that is. You know, that's, that's the song that doesn't get old is <laughs> how you're prepped for diligence. And it's so true. It's so true. When you look at a deal and their stuff is beautifully organized, uh, you get excited about it. <laughs> you're like, this company has their shit together. <laughs> right. uh, I'm, I'm already comfortable doing this deal. You know, it's just like walking in the house. I think we were talking about house hunting earlier. Right, right. I mean, I just, yeah, I saw that the house was just, everything's done. I mean, this place has no work to do and I'm, I'm paying a premium for it. Um, On purpose day, for a reason, right? I, yeah, I'm just like, I don't have work to do. I don't care. I'm going to spend, I, I'm paying in this market right now 20% more than I want to, but it's, there's no question about it. It's just, I, it's, everything's immaculately done. They've obviously done the work. They've taken care of it. It's even less diligence for me to do. I'm already convinced mm. i think selling the company it's the exact same way so oh, the better because that is so awesome man i have uh in our training i have two pictures of a house the same house but one's a total pile of shit and the other one's walking ready and i'm like this i just related to the business i'm like it's twice the value of the other one it's the same damn house <laughs> just different types of buyers and i think you know um, I, uh, a while back, I interviewed David Horsager about trust and how trust is just such the, I mean, that's what we're exchanging back and forth. And like what you're doing is you're enhancing the trust, therefore protecting the price or the, the reason to buy on both sides. I agree. You know, one thing I, I just thought of that we didn't touch on, I was thinking the other area to make the deal successful is the reverse diligence. Mm. And I think this is a concept that doesn't get talked about too much, but if you're buying a company, how much time do you spend to help them understand your company, what your different business lines are, where are they going to fit into it and essentially help them do diligence on, on your organization. But that's something I, I think is a really good exercise that helps make that transition go a lot better because you're, you're being engaging. You want to be inclusive with this company because you're essentially onboarding all those employees mm-hmm. once you do the acquisition and you're making them part of your organization. If they can have a better certainty about what that's going to look like and what more about the company they're going to be joining, 
the better off the transition is going to go. Well, no, nah, we didn't do that. I mean, like, <laughs> and I know a lot of I, people, I, it's not like a common practice. No, I know but it, it's so important. I actually, I, now it's funny that you brought it up, man. I was like the, the podcast we did four or five years ago, you brought that up too. And I was like, yeah, most like, I think those are the couple times that people have talked about it. I'm a huge proponent of that for sure with private equity, because it's like, if you're rolling equity, like you're technically an investor in there. So you have every right to be doing reverse due diligence. But like, I, I it's so interesting, man. Like I think about the operational synergies or like the actual like financial models become so mechanical, which yeah, there's pros and cons and a lot of tension and arguments that can happen around that stuff. But it's, I, I keep going back to the go-to-market strategy and the, and the culture. And if someone's never been through a deal or bought a company or sold a company, like, I, like, and I struggle with this, Keysan, because there's so many people around, how many con, uh, culture consultants are out there, right? And they're like, hey, we can assess your culture. But like, it really boils down to the nuances of like, hey, I believe that we should go to market like this and like having that conversation. So unless you've been screwed over, you, you don't really necessarily know to have that conversation. So how do you... How do you take someone to enlighten them about how to assess culture and have these conversations? I mean, like, is there, a, or is it just through time or like, what do you, what do you see that works? I, I think there's a lot of interactions that you just put a holistic view on. Um, it's tough because everybody's got different views on this, right? If you talk to the HR folks, they've got a very strong opinion about culture. But when you look at, honestly, at the very few people that are involved with making that deal because once that LOI signed, I mean, it's, it's game time. Like we're not, <laughs> culture isn't going to get in the way. <laughs> we're going to get the close. We're not going to stop this deal because we don't think it's a good culture fit. Um, <laughs> rarely, rarely. Right, right, right. You may have some blank red star, red reasons why, but not really. Um, so that's where I, I think the emphasis is doing it upfront early. And it is, I, I've done enough of these interviews when we were running through diligence on the deal recently. And it was a little awkward because I'm just like, I, I got to do this stuff because I've learned about it. So I can't just ignore it. But it is, it's a little funny to have these specific questions to really understand what that company's culture. And it, it gets to that, right? You start on the, 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 the values, you get an understanding of these things that define their way of working. Then you get into the leadership styles. Then you get into the real decision-making stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you can identify in this instance you could tell like we operate at a much faster pace than this organization that we're looking to combine with and it's like this isn't going to go well like it's just going to annoy them and annoy us like mm -hmm. it's not going to be a thing so I, I i don't know and that's a small deal i don't you know on this bigger ones too a lot of times you've got a lot more stakeholders and bigger numbers and if you got some a business case and how this is going to generate a significant amount of value then you tend to minimize those things so that's the thing uh, to be mindful of realistic about as much as we like to emphasize culture is the biggest thing. There's philosophies. I've talked to some of the most seasoned M&A people with over a hundred closed deals under their belt. And like you said, at the end of the day, there's going to be a new culture. The mm -hmm. culture is unique between these companies. When they combine, it's going to be different anyways. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to, you know, we'll put some considerations around it, but it's never going to be the, the primary driver of whether we do the deal or not. It's so, it's so fascinating, man. And I'm curious on like in, when, in your size of the marketplace, like how many people that are acquiring or like, you know, cause corporate development 
divisions. That's their job is to go find companies and find the proprietary deals, do the deal like you're talking about. How many of those individuals have a long-term bonus plan tied to making the acquisition successful? It depends, right? Because you you don't want to make it too directly tied to doing acquisitions and people are objectively trying to acquire revenues, mm-hmm. right? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. then you're setting yourself up for a lot of bad deals to happen. Um, so there's there's got to be some defined bonus around the real value that's created. Um, now, corporate development's job isn't necessarily to do this whole M&A, find the deals and so forth. You know, their, their job there is to support the deal activity. And ideally, it should be a business unit leader that has a clear strategy and is actively identifying those opportunities and working with corporate development to execute on them. That, that is super enlightening. Because um, like what you're just saying is like, hey, the, if they have a division of a product or service, that product or service has a partial acquisition strategy tied to that division's growth, they're going to use the corporate division of the skilled professionals to accomplish that. Is that, was that what you're saying? Yeah. Cause that, that ownership is there, right? So right. you're going to buy You're going to buy a company, right? You're going to be hundred percent part of it all the way. Mm-hmm. And it's, and you know about how much distraction it's going to be yep. because you're going all in, you know, you got a lot, you're investing and you're really going to be heavily involved with it. Uh, and then when you look at a larger corporation, it's, comprised of a bunch of different businesses and there's a bunch of different business leaders that own those different business lines. So you, you want that, you want one of those business unit leaders to own that acquisition because they're the ones that ultimately got to take full accountability of the, the P and L once things are said and done. The corporate development person doesn't do that. So that's, they're going to be on to the, to the next, next one next or helping the next person. Right. And not sitting there handholding, making sure everything that was talked about was actually good and followed through with. Yeah, you, they, they help a lot. Mm-hmm. They, they definitely can help really define the strategy for M&A. They can help even search and look for some of the opportunities. But that real champion's got to come from that business line that's ultimately going to own it. So um, let's talk about uh, how, like... In when so if so if someone brings the integration plan to the forefront during due diligence, are do you have any of your clients that are actively then looking at that integration plan and looking at addbacks that are the investments? And here's why I'm asking this, uh, Kisan, is that I got quite a few people that I know that I've got introduced to them after they did a roll up strategy and they're managing their their financials by the net income, not the normalized EBITDA, so they're not doing integration. I think about how ridiculous that is, man. Cause it's like, well, our income, our net income will be lower if we're integrating. <laughs> so like how, like is when you're looking at it from like the size, I think it's just more of maybe the maturity and I don't want to project, but I'm curious in your, how you see it. But like if someone's going in there and they're looking at the projections, I mean, do they have like an integration budget that is an ad back for themselves as well? How do they track, how do they treat that? Most, I've seen this comment, usually the first two couple deals, the first, maybe three deals that say, you don't properly plan budget your, you prop, you don't properly budget your integration. You missed the mark on it. Even that first deal, you don't plan on any budget for integrating the company. <laughs> uh, and then you run into some, some surprises there because you should, if you want to capture these points of value, you should budget for how you're going to integrate. It's expensive. It's not, there's a lot of people you need to use external people, those resources. You're going to expend have some expenditures related to integrating the company. Um, so that, that happens often. 
Yeah, it, I forgot the other part. No, no, it's 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 a. Uh, it's just so like it's almost like Redacky. You could ask that one question if you're the seller. Like, how have you pro- how have you pre budgeted for the integration? How are you going to handle it? And if they just look at you with a blank stare, you're like, got it. <laughs> well, because again, then, then all the hopes and dreams are not going to be realized if all of a sudden everybody's trying to reduce expenses versus do the investment of the ing- integration. I mean, it's just a expense versus an investment mindset that you could spot right off the bat. I agree. I heard it's something around three to five percent. Mm, that's interesting typically ends up okay you, you know you should have put to the side for integration related expenses and activity this is all little odds and ends stuff right maybe you get a bunch of new swags put together to you know introduce some new employees to the new brand and get them excited about it I and mean, that's stuff like that the events you do around mm-hmm. it uh, all these system migrations and things like that but um yeah there's definitely how, how like the people that, that are doing like active acquisition strategies what you know the people i don't know if they're that's one of your typical clients but like what's like a what are you seeing as like if someone has an acquisition strategy that's part of their organic growth like how many deals do you think that someone could successfully acquire and integrate over what period of time i'm just kind of curious because i think about the pe stories that we all hear or that i've been exposed to versus like someone that's buying one or two a year and like i'm just kind of curious like what what's practical do you think yeah, well, so we bucket in three, right? You have an occasional acquirer that does zero to one deals a year. You have a frequent acquirer that does two to 10 deals a year. And you have a serial acquirer doing 10 or more deals a year. Yeah. Now, these serial acquirers, they have an army. And you see them with like 30 to over 100 plus people dedicated to M&A in that organization. And their integration will have dedicated team for integration. And each functional department will have dedicated folks for integration. Mm. So they, they are able to allocate resources to run a number of concurrent acquisitions at a time. Yeah. Um, so it, it is it is different. I, I think there is. Now, how efficient can you do that? Yeah, the bigger Depends. deals, it's harder. Mm-hmm. They're, they're dealing with bigger challenges. Those large, large deals can be a multi-year integration exercise. No, I was, hey, that was super helpful, man. Like how you bucketed those down. Because again, these are just, I, I'm trying to... Uh, highlight the, the simple questions that are just like that are such a leading indicator like hey how many do you do how do you budget what are your resources what is your plan that is tied to the future growth <laughs> and based on their responses i think you could probably look on their face on like how serious they are about doing this i think le- leadership is like the key to all of this i it, the the biggest challenges i see are with organizations they're new to M&A and they, they, they're doing it and they're learning the expensive way, I guess. You know, can you bring in an experienced person, however you can, find somebody that's experienced, can help save a, a lot of headaches and costs. I think that's the mm. big thing I've seen. Because mm. when you work at some of these mature companies, really, really do a good job in acquisitions. I'm a, I hire some of the tech companies I've seen where they've just got such a good culture. A lot of that agile thinking is already there from their engineering culture. Mm. And they have seasoned leaders that have done it before and they know how to support an incoming company, uh, really drive that leadership, align with their leaders, have the right messaging. They don't leave a bunch of unanswered questions and for people to be very concerned about their their future employment Mm -hmm. and those things. Or even if they are, even if they are cutting people out, they are very clear and they communicate it (laughs) in a way and saying, yeah, we are going to eliminate your role, but we're going to need your help. Mm -hmm. We're going to need you for six months. We're going to set up a package. 
so that, you know, we're incentivizing you to be here. We're going to give you a great severance package and help you transition. Whether it's a role in our company or outside our company, we got your back either way. Mm-hmm. When you communicate that way, it just sets things up to be a much better integration. Yeah, leadership, man. I think you're spot on. Because like every time I we bring on a new client or someone that's coming through our training that's telling me about where they want to go and what's stopping them, so many times it's just like, hi. <laughs> it's like, here's the mirror. And it's just like, so it, it, and what I think I've seen uh, from my, from my side of the market he's on is that like the last three, four years, the amount of activity and how the cheap money and the stuff that's been flowing around. I want, I don't, I'd be interesting to find the data point. I don't know if it's out there, but how many were new people involved in this space? And it's like, cause like every time I talk to someone and they're like looking at an out of the blue offer and I'm just like, you've never done this before. And I'm just like trying to think of like, I immediately think of all the things that I would be asking. I'm like, Oh, they don't know any of these questions. And it's just like, but it's like this gap, it's this gap between expectations and reality and the good leaders know that that's where all the shit storm happens. So like we want to thread expectations and reality together as fast as possible. But if you've never experienced it, it's all just conjecture and you're just kind of like hoping it all works. So I just, I don't know if you like the, how many people are new that have been involved over the last three, four years. I mean, have you seen. We, we tend to work with frequent acquirers. So they'll, they're typically doing two consistently two or more deals a year. Um, but I, uh, I, I can see that is the, the biggest challenge is that lack of experience. I think starting off with a small deal is probably your best bet because you, you're going to go through it regardless. It's just like anything entering a new space. There's a big learning curve. You don't have that domain expertise to leverage. Same thing goes with M and A. So don't take a big bet the first time around. Build into it. <laughs> that's some solid advice, my friend. Um, <laughs> I think that's the yeah, best you can do. Don't don't. You, you know, I can. We can sit there and talk all day about you know get this, do all these things we just talked about, but you're probably not going to do any of it. Uh, so just try to minimize your <laughs> your loss by take, don't doing a big deal right off the bat. Do something really small. It gets, you know, take the loss because you'll have some, you know, you're probably not going to make out the best in that first deal. And then, you know, it's coming. Yeah, right. You know, you'll, you'll figure out quickly and. Well, it's interesting, man. Like that's, a, yeah, no, oh, amen. Amen to that. Um, uh, Based on the deals that I've been a part of, it was like, oh, they tried to bite off an entire elephant right now and they don't know how to chew their food. So, but what I find interesting, maybe you can speak to the. The strategic acquirers, I don't know if you've got any comments on this, where the strategic acquirers and the size of deals, well, maybe not strategic acquirers, just any buyer's desire for the size of the deal to make it worth it. Because a lot of, you know, the middle market entrepreneurs that listen in, it's like, hey, you know, whether they got a $10 million company or a $100 million company, it, those are big companies, but all of a sudden they're sitting down next to someone that might be doing a half a billion or a billion and they're having this conversation, but someone recently I was at a conference and like, yeah, they said no, because it wasn't worth it to them. And they just were flabbergasted. So do you have any comments? Do you, I, I could see you nodding. So I think it's, it's, well, it's your own judgment, right? You, you do you as a executive, your job fundamentally CEO is to manage capital, right? Fundamentally it's capital allocation. So if you're looking at doing a deal, even for us, we're still a growth company. We have two of the three business lines where over 100% year-over-year growth. So we're like looking at some of these opportunities thinking, is this going to be distracting, taking away from strong organic growth that we're currently having? Mm-hmm. 
So there, there, are, there are those type of things where you're looking at the whole picture. And that's where that's where the, the, the numbers matter, like the ratio of the size of the deal and, then, and the accretiveness of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then look, yeah, looking at the whole thing, because it does, because it, there is that challenge you have on resources where you can see, say that a small MA deal is just as much work as a bigger MA deal. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally the same. Mm -hmm. That's why I say go do the small deals. Well, that's what I was saying. That's why I brought betting the, betting the house. <laughs> but you'll see quickly, like doing the effort on a small deal versus midsize versus large deal is fundamentally very similar. You got to go through a lot of the same exercises to do it. Um, you get some scale as you do bigger deals, but it's still hard. So I, I think that's why, because mm -hmm. when you look at it, what kind of economic impact you're going to make mm -hmm. and you have to go through all that. Yeah, you, you could call a deal too small. Well, it's super helpful. And, and the reason I thought about it is because if you're buying a company that, if you're buying a company for 5 million versus you're buying a company for 50 million, that like we teach in our in our academy in principle four about uh, growing value in their, these functional areas of a business. And it's like, regardless of the company, the industry, you have HR, you have operations, you have leadership, you have IT, like even if you have a lemonade stand. So like you have to, all that has got to get integrated regardless if it's a million dollars or a hundred million dollars. So like you said, I think it was a, I said, and you're distracting everybody, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> if you got a full of all the functions, you got to integrate them. You're literally giving extra homework for everybody in your, your company. Right. And if they don't see and understand the value of it or are excited about it, that's not a good thing. You're causing more friction. <laughs> yeah distraction same same quotas same everything but just more work right yeah that, that'll go over well um exactly maybe they're a small little company they're pre-revenue but they have this capability that's really unique that will get your sales team super excited to sell their product mm -hmm. okay great it's worth it mm -hmm. but yeah if you don't have that and they're scratching their heads around it probably not better to do that deal <laughs> well like i said well said so as we're getting uh close to the wrap up here man um I'm just so curious. I mean, you going going from the corporate world and M and A, probably making some good money, to jumping into entrepreneurship where you eat glass and stare into the abyss, according to some <laughs> Steve Jobs, some people. What do you What did you hope to make? What did you hope to do with your businesses, and what do you hope to do to make it all worth it? Like, what's the what's the passion and the fire in you, man, to to be doing this? I, I, I'll tell you straight up. When I first started this, I thought I was going to just make some quick money. I thought in six months, I'll be sitting on the beach, just refreshing my bank account, watching that <laughs> yes. number go up. And then it, it was a painful wake up call. <laughs> Seven years of negative tax returns to realize it doesn't ha happen that way. I think after enduring that, that pain, uh, I, I tell these undergrad kids, learn to suffer. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way you want to be successful. Some thing my dad used to always tell me when we were little kids in the backseat complaining about stuff, <laughs> learn to suffer. <laughs> um, good. Now I understand. Now I understand what he means. You know, I, I, for us, it's about the industry and the impact we want to make in the industry. We look at M&A as highly inefficient industry. And just the, the connotation that you get when you talk to people about M&A, they, they look at it as a very negative thing. They associate it with layoffs. They associate it with uh, chaos and you know some of their favorite products getting destroyed and things like that. And I think there's a way to rethink M&A and it's something of what it actually is. It, it is a way to create an immense amount of value. And it's a way that is, it's always stemmed off of a vision for innovation. When you look at the drivers of doing M&A deals, it's just the current way of doing things often misses those results. Mm -hmm. There's an opportunity to rethink the way M&A is done so that it is more uh, 
fruitful for everybody involved, that it creates more opportunity, creates more growth, increases GDP, and can help organizations create value. That is a noble goal, my friend. I love it. I love it so much. What would you do if someone offered you a huge chunk of money to buy your company just to take the clients to do more deals and not fulfill that legacy? <laughs> That's tough. I mean, we get some interesting offers, but I just, I know we can, I, I just don't know what to do. Like for me, it's like, okay, with that money, you know, buy a nice house and car, but then what? That's not. You already, you already got the, your new, new house under a contract anyway, so you're already halfway there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had the one, uh, the bio firm asked me the same question. I turned around and asked him, what would you do with that money? He's like, buy a company like yours. I'm like, all right, I'm a step ahead. So, <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. I love it. Yeah, no, seriously. I was on the, I was interviewing Sonny Vanderbeck. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a private equity guy. And he's like, I was sitting next to my buddy who was explaining to me this awesome company that they got. They got Newton management in place. They're kicking off cash flow. They got great growth projections and they got an offer. They're going to sell it. Suddenly goes, what are you going to do with the money? He's like, find a great company with good management and great. <laughs> it's just so funny, isn't it? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So I, I'm not bored yet. I, uh, <laughs> Uh, I think we're at, we're at a fun stage. We're about 46 people in the company right that's now. That's awesome, so man. Congratulations, uh, dude. I love it. Cause like when we were both talking years ago, it was both like, all right, man, we're both on this roll. Let's figure it out. I think I was even trying to figure out if we could pl pl plug in deer room to some of the stuff that we were doing, but it's, uh, it's fun to watch that people care. And I think it is a sign that you're growing that it, the, the M&A market is maturing of like, Hey, this has got to be worth it over time. I mean, so it's, I think it's good. I think you're making an impact, man. It's awesome. I, it's funny when my kids, you know, like seven and nine years old, 12 year old daughter, they keep up with m &A news. They follow what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter and stuff. It's, it's interesting. It's changing. Like I mean, it's really becoming more mainstream. So, so. It, it is, man. It, it, it truly is. It's like, Oh, it's, I, I was giving someone else the analogy. It's kind of like what real estate happened with real estate investing like 25, 30 years ago. I don't know if it's maybe part of that. Yeah. It's a good thing. I mean, I think a lot of younger people have to get into it to, you know, get some of these baby boomers that want to transition out. They got to get involved somehow. So I got two final questions for you, man. Uh, Cause I know we're running uh, up to the timeline here. Last uh, first question is the word intentional. I love asking what people, what it means because it's the name of the show and I've uh, learned a lot from people's responses. So I'm curious in what the word intentional means for you. I tie it to discipline. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when you, when you have intent, you want to stick on track with it and not deviate. So I always think of discipline. That's one of my core values. Just I love it. Committing to things, whether you're uncomfortable, comfortable. Be comfortable with the suffering, Gizan, like your dad said. Yeah. <laughs> learn, to, <laughs> learn to suffer. Learn to suffer. Learn yeah. to have that discipline to suffer towards your goals. No, I think it's like, it's great. It's great, man. Where can people find you? MA Science, the podcast, the, the deal room, everything mascience.com i think it's all on there you can probably find a way to get a hold of me on there too yeah i love it man podcast same thing MA science thank you so much for coming back on the show it's been great catching up man i am glad glad we had time to collaborate on this ryan and uh we'll look forward to the next conversation i hope you enjoyed that interview with Kisan. i think the big takeaway is in order to be intentional which the definition of intentional is purposeful action towards a clearly identified outcome you got to understand what that clearly identified outcome is. And if you don't know what the combined integrated companies are, whether you're selling or whether you're buying, 
then you're just guessing and hoping that the end state is just going to unfold in front of your eyes. And when you're dealing with people and systems and egos and finance, my God, the best thing you can do is be armed with the clear vision of exactly what you're trying to accomplish. And the only way to do that is to level up your education. So uh, oddly enough, go check out the Intentional Growth Academy would be my suggestion. But the, the, and all, all joking aside, the more you can understand about how M&A works and what the operations and financial goals are to create equity value, then you can reverse engineer and you can be sitting at the table of these deals having conversations with sellers and buyers, knowing exactly what you're trying to accomplish. And then you can layer in the numbers to make sure that the financial rewards are there for all the hard work. So I appreciate everybody tuning in. I'm very excited for next week's episode. It is our quarterly economic and M&A update with ITR Economics and Butcher Joseph. So we have a segment with each of them talking about what's going on in the economy. Uh, I've already interviewed uh, and recorded the one with Brian from ITR, a lot of good stuff there. And as well as Butcher Joseph, Jeff and I are going to be discussing volume of transactions in the M&A marketplace, what's going on with how much equity down, how much debt, earnouts, all that kind of stuff. So uh, make sure to tune into next week's episode. (music)